Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, as you do, just a, a couple of things I uh, want to mention. First of all, uh, thankful for a uh, Christ-honoring service on Friday as we celebrated the life of Sue Harper and gathered with family and friends and those that knew her and grateful for the testimony of her faith in Jesus Christ and also the opportunity to lift up the gospel on Friday as well. So we ask that you continue to pray for their family um, as well as the Atkins family in these recent um, home goings of saints who uh, knew the Lord. And, um, and then as we think about them and others that we know that are going through trials and difficulties, let's bow our head one more time, our heads one more time before we go into God's word and let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all grace and comfort, and we pray, Lord, that uh, not only for these families that we've mentioned, but uh, for all those that are in our body that are experiencing sorrows and difficulties and trials, we pray that you would strengthen them in their faith um, and hope in Christ, and that you would wrap them in the grace of the gospel. And uh, we pray, Lord, that um, you will continue to mold and shape our lives in light of what Christ has done. Today, now, as we gather as your people, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and that through the work of the Spirit, through the Word, that you will increase our faith and that as we leave here today, we will be rejoicing that we have been reconciled to you uh, through what Christ has done. We pray that today we will look to Jesus for our righteousness, for um, our justification, and for our standing before you. And that in him alone, we will stand firm and steadfast. Uh, pray, Lord, that you would again fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that the word will be rightly divided. Uh, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. And today, the title of the message is, He Reconciled Us. And we're going to read Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me begin just asking a question. Have you ever had conflict with someone? That's what I thought. Is there ever a disagreement in your home? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Or, or how about this? Do your children ever argue? Certainly no one's children in this room ever argue at all. When my kids were little and uh, they would have some conflict that eventually poured over into stressing me uh, and Christy, I, I would sit them down on the couch and whatever offense was take, committed, what I, what I did is I would make the person who committed the offense to admit the offense. Then I would say, now you look at your brother or sister and you say, I'm sorry. And then they'd look and, you know, they'd, they'd kind of first be looking down and they'd look up at each other and then say, I'm sorry. Then I'd look at the other person, or the other one, and I'd say, now you look at them and you say, you are forgiven. And then they, you know, start smiling a little bit and you're forgiven or I forgive you, whatever it was I had them say. But then I had one last element to it. And I'd say, now, hug each other. Yeah, yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, all the warmth filled the, the, the room and a little tear comes out of my eye and all that stuff. And, and, and that, that last act of you reach across and you hug each other was to demonstrate you're not enemies, you're friends, and not just friends, you're family. And I, I use that as an illustration because today that's what we're talking about. That's what this passage presents to us but really presents to us something that is far more serious than just a family conflict or a disagreement in our home. This presents to us the reality that there is a cosmic conflict that is between sinners and God, or God and sinners. 
And so the truth that is immediately emerges from the verses that we read is the truth or the doctrine of reconciliation. And so what I just described to you was just a kind of simple family illustration of reconciliation. And all of us have experienced that on one level or another in our relationships with other people. But one of the mysteries of the gospel is just this, that God can be the friend of sinners and that sinful people can be embraced by him and have a place at the table of his fellowship. In fact, we sing a song and in that song we'll say, once your enemies now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And that 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 mystery, that wonder of the gospel that we see it even in Jesus' life and ministry where he was accused of of having company with with or being the friend of sinners. And so reconciliation, if we are going to define what it is, it's simply this. It is the restoration of a right relationship with God between God and man. I mean, that would be just a basic definition of it. So if you take notes, just write that down. That reconciliation is the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. So in our faith, when it comes to salvation, justification deals with the legal state or the legal angle of our salvation, how we stand before God who is our judge. We now in Christ stand right with Him. But now reconciliation deals with our, it's a relational term. It deals with our relationship with God and what Christ has done to restore that that restore that relationship. Now here, when you come to verse 21, we're in the middle of Paul explaining to the, the Colossian church that he prays for them. And he's gone through a lengthy description of his, the way he prays. And then he has presented Christ as the Lord of creation and the Lord of salvation. And he gets to verse 20 and he says to the Colossians that Christ has reconciled all things and made peace through the blood of his cross. Now we need to understand that when he says he's reconciled all things, he's not suggesting that every person will be saved, but instead what he's suggesting is, is that through Christ's death on the cross, God has lifted the curse off of creation that came as a result, or he is lifting the curse off of creation that came as the result of sin, and he's opened a way for sinners to become friends with God. And so, what we see then is this, is that this is important because what Paul does then in verse 21 is he wants these Christians to, to know how they have personally experienced reconciliation. And so what we see in verse 21, and you, see how he makes it personal? Salvation is corporately personal. It's not that we're just talking about like, oh yeah, God has reconciled all things and then we sing joy to the world. No, we have experienced this res- this reconciliation personally. You, congregation, every person sitting in this room who has experienced salvation, you, God, has reconciled to himself through Christ. And so that would be really important for these believers because there were false teachers that were coming into the church and these false teachers were saying, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Reconciliation with God is really not possible through Christ alone. I mean, there's a whole lot of other things you've got to do to really be reconciled with God. And Paul wants them to know, no, no, no. Everything necessary for us to be in a right relationship with God has been achieved by Jesus Christ. And so the key truth that you need to walk away as you walk out these doors today is this. It is this. Christ is able to reconcile sinners to God. That's the truth of these verses. And the Colossians would have truly believed that because they had experienced it themselves. And Paul wants to remind them of this here in this text. So for us to really see this key truth as it is laid out to us, we're going to look at three 
things in the passage. We're going to look at our need for reconciliation. We're going to look at the means of reconciliation. And then we're going to see the outcome of reconciliation. So let's start with our need for reconciliation. Look at verse 21. And you, you personal again, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Stop. Bookmark. What Paul does in verse 21 to drive home this truth of reconciliation is he takes the Colossians back to their pre-Christian condition. He goes back to what they were before they were converted. And he goes back to when they were in desperate need of salvation and he describes with three clear phrases what their condition was before they came to Christ and how that condition made them in need of reconciliation. And so listen, brothers and sisters, if we're going to treasure, for those of you here today that are, you, you may not consider yourself a Christian, you stand in need of reconciliation. And for all of us who have been saved, if you are going to treasure your relationship with God in a deeper, more, a more, in a fuller way, then you need to start here. You need to start with the depravity of our condition outside of Christ. That depravity here is defined in three ways. One, we were separated from God by our natures. Isn't that what the text says? You were alienated from God. Most simply put, our sin is what alienates us from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So we begin with that reality, that sin separates us from God. To be separated from God, it it means to be estranged from him. Scripture describes it this way, like sheep we have gone astray, each of us chasing our own way. We have turned from God and we have pursued our own path. We've become disconnected, separated. I don't know, maybe you've ever, if you're, I remember years ago we were at Disney, we were at Disney World and it was, we were, let's see, we had Eden was just a baby and so Elias was in, Isaac was just maybe a few years old, three or four years old and we were in the crowd and all of a sudden we realized, because you always have to do a head count when you have multiple kids, and you realize one's missing. And so all of a sudden, you know, that where your heart drops into your gut and you're like, oh my goodness, where is he? And you're, we're turning and looking every which way and we couldn't see him because of the crowd and then, well, as you can see, we found him. So anyway, so the, the point here is, is that we, we've been separated. But, but you see, this idea of alienation from God goes deeper than that. When Paul says we've been alienated, we have divorced ourselves from God. And we are cut off from Him completely. The the tense of the verb alienate here shows that it is a fixed state. In other words, not only are we alienated, there's nothing that we can do about it. Because we're that lost. I mean, we're off the path. We're, We're deep in the woods. And we are running headlong towards a cliff. That's what we were outside of Christ. And so our relationship with God is completely broken and severed. That's what Paul's driving at. That's what life was before you became Christians, Colossians. And, 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 and it was our relationships broken in two ways. So we need to understand this in two ways. First, all people have a sinful pride and selfishness that completely disregards God and exalts self. That, that's how we separated ourselves. We have an attitude of pride and selfishness. You see this in our culture with a consistent emphasis on personal autonomy. Me, mind, and, and nothing else and no one else. I get to define the rules. I get to make my own way. I determine my destiny. You see, we're, we are alienated from God because we have a natural disposition against God. 
But the other way that we're alienated from God is in this way. It's not just one way. God is holy. God is righteous. And nothing evil can be in His presence, the prophet Habakkuk says. Therefore, sinners are alienated and they are excluded from His presence with no relationship with Him because of sin. And the result of that is that all sinners face the, God's wrath and judgment. Jesus said in John 3.36, He who does not believe on me, the wrath of God abides on him. It's fixed upon him. So the first part of our natural condition is, we were, or, or as believers, we were separated from God. Second thing, we hated God. That's what the text says. It says that who were, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. Paul draws that out in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19 where he says that we had, we hated God. That is that in our natural condition, we make God our enemy. I mean, we gotta really get the picture here. Paul is not fawning over humanity. He is saying that in our lost condition, we made God our enemy. That is our natural attitude toward God. And and you know what that does? It completely dismantles the notion that any person just naturally loves God and seeks Him. Romans 3 says there are none who do good, there are none who know God, and there are none who are seeking Him. None. You weren't seeking God when you were saved. God was seeking you. That is the absolute truth of what Paul's communicating here. And listen, we can pretend all we want. We can hear politicians get up and talk about God. Celebrities thank God. We can hear people acknowledge a higher power. And that might look spiritual. But Scripture says that the natural mind of man, his his understanding of God has been darkened. And because of our ignorance, truly, we make God our enemy. You see that in Romans 1, where we're told that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that sinners suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and then trip headlong down a path of destruction. And so by using the word mind with, the, with this ideal of hostility, it shows us that the attitude of our heart towards God outside of Christ is an attitude that hates Him. It is from the wellspring of the heart, the mind, that the issues of life flow. All the sins that we commit come from hearts that are corrupt and rotten to the core. That's what Paul is communicating our life was like before Christ. So we were separated from God by our natures. We hated God in our minds. And then notice the third thing, we oppose God through our deeds. I mean, it's just dominoes here. Alienated from God, we, we in hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Notice that the evil deeds flow from the disposition of the natural man's heart. This would include all the idolatry, all the lust, violence, immorality, greed, pride, covetousness that defines humanity and seeds of it are found in every single one of us apart from Christ. All of that flows from our corrupt sinful natures Ephesians 2 verse 1 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were listen to this by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the description of sinful man, and that was all of us brothers and sisters before we met Jesus. So apart from salvation, we are totally ruined, totally wrecked. And you know, it's important to kind of pause here because I'm a church kid, not a kid anymore. I was raised in church. So we hear that and we think like, well, wait a minute, like, I don't ever recall, like, actively saying I hate God. doesn't matter. That was the disposition of my heart. Sin is 
bad. I mean, it really is. It's far worse than what we ever imagined. And it wrecks everything. Relationships, and, inf- and, and here's the truth. Scripture is clear. Look at that passage in Ephesians. It has infected every part of our being. And the reason that we need to grasp that is because it communicates to us that there is nothing that we can do to please God or make ourselves right with Him. But salvation begins with this truth. I am utterly sinful, totally corrupt, and unable to save myself. We're raising kids. The most important truth that we need to begin with when it comes to the gospel is to confront them with the reality of their sinful standing before God. You're not going to go to heaven because you're raised in a a Christian home. You're not going to go to heaven because you're a a semi-good person. You're not going to go to heaven because of all the evil that you avoided. The only way you can go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That is what is so necessary. And so, yeah, even even a even a church kid sitting in a pew, being raised in a Christian home, and being taught the truth week to week, was totally alienated from God and completely hostile towards Him, and committing evil deeds. Every one of us, right? And and, and you know, and as a kid, you know, you know how to in the church, we know how to dress all that up, know how to put the mask on, pretend, put the facade. But the reality is, as I grew up and heard the gospel, the Lord began to use the gospel to unmask my heart and reveal that my greatest need is to be saved from my sin. And brothers and sisters, that's the truth applied. The need for reconciliation, the truth is this. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And Paul's description here was all of our life before Jesus I don't have to unwind a a huge list of all kinds of terrible, horrible things I did. By nature, I was a child of wrath. That was before Christ. So the first thing that Paul does is he gives the need for reconciliation. The second thing that he gives is the means of reconciliation. Now I want you to pay close attention here for just a second. The text says... And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now. Stop for just a second. We've got a little conjunction there. It's the word now. In some translations, it will translate, but now. <laughs> and, and, and whenever you come to this little conjunction, but now, in the New Testament, you need to stop. Because aren't you glad that the text doesn't end with and you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, period, and then nothing else? Because then there would be no salvation. And so this happens throughout the, throughout the, throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but what does verse 4 say? But God who was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive. Ephesians 3, verse 19, we were once far off. Aren't you glad it doesn't end there? But God has brought us near through the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is clear here that though that was our condition, praise God, God, but now God has reconciled us. It is God who has taken the initiative, not man, in our salvation. And that is why we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And what made all the difference? Grace, amazing grace, made all the difference in the world. So if we're going to appreciate what Paul says in verse 22, we've really got to grasp verse 21. That's what our condition was before Christ, but now he has reconciled us, and look at the text, in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so Paul shows us here 
the means of reconciliation. So how has God reconciled us? Well, this way. We are reconciled by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's what he says in the text. In his body of flesh by his death. So what does he mean when he says the body of flesh? Well, he's being very, very selective with his words because you've got these people, right, who will claim that, that false teachers have come into the church and they'll say, oh, I mean, you know, God was not really in Christ. Jesus is not really God. He, he didn't really, his death on the cross really actually didn't, it did not accomplish anything truly for us. And so when Paul says body of flesh, he's identifying Jesus as a real person. A person who is the Messiah. And Jesus took on flesh and he entered our earthly existence as a completely full human being. And though he was without sin, he went to the cross. And on the cross, he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin. He took the penalty of our sin, the consequence for our sin. And so as fully human, he offered himself as the sacrifice, his body crucified on the cross. But we also know that he's fully God because verse, uh, verse 19, if you go back to verse 19, it clearly says that in him the fullness of God dwelt in him. And so as God, he defeated sin. And as God, he was able to remove the barrier between us and God. That's what Paul's getting at. So, so as a human being, as a, as a perfect human being, he offers himself as sacrifice, as fully God. He is able to remove the barrier that stood between us and God. And on that cross, he died for us. On our behalf. In our place. And the wrath of God was poured out against Christ. And when the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, God's justice was satisfied. Which means that sin was punished. And as we heard earlier in Sunday school, a fountain was opened. A fountain of grace and mercy. So that sinners can come to him. That is why Jesus on the cross cried, it is finished. When he cried out, it is finished, read Mark's gospel. What happened? I mean, yes, the earth shook. I mean, the, the earth was darkened. There was, a, there was a quaking of the earth. And what happened in the temple when he yelled, it is finished? The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Why does Mark's gospel include that detail? Because it shows us that the barrier that separated us from God has been forever removed and a way has been opened to Him through the blood of Calvary's cross. The veil is gone. The separation is removed. And reconciliation is now possible. You you see, so when Paul says, He's now reconciled you, He's not just saying that because, you know, let bygones be bygones. He's saying that because the barrier of offense has been removed because the penalty has been paid. Reconciliation is a reality. It is a reality. And that is the wisdom of God in our salvation. Through Christ's sacrifice and shed blood, we are made right with God. We who are now, we who are now here and we are saved, we're no longer enemies, we're friends. But what's the base of that? Just because God came down and gave us a, a cosmic hug? No. Because in Christ, our sin was dealt with. On the cross, in his body of flesh, by his death, he has reconciled. Us, Paul anchors reconciliation in the historic event of the cross. And so, Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
So sometimes we'll say, okay, well, then that's great. I, you know, people say, oh, I just want to be close to God. I just want to be near God. Well, here's the news. You can be. The way's been opened. And you now can approach him. That's why scripture says, come to me. That's why Jesus says, come. Come to the, come to the water and drink. And you will all, come all who are thirsty and drink. And you will never thirst again. It is because a means has been made for reconciliation to happen. But Paul interestingly says, shows us why he reconciled us. So it's not just like, oh, he reconciled us so that we could just have a relationship with him. But, but notice why he reconciled us. This is seen in the next phrase. In order to present you, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach repro- before him. Now, what's interesting is if you just kind of split that, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, look what's happened after Christ. He will present us holy, blameless, above reproach. See the parallel? I mean, you're talking drastic change here. Big transformation has happened because of Christ. So Paul gives the purpose of reconciliation. And here's what's what's amazing. Paul moves to the future. He is now in heaven. To our glorified state. And he says, he did this. He's reconciled us so that he will present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So he shows us how God will see us when we are glorified in heaven. How will God see us when we are glorified in heaven? First, we will be holy in his sight. Now, I understand holiness, like there's, there's an angle of holiness whereby we pursue holiness for sanctification, right? We want to become like Christ, but that's not, that's not the, the context here. On the day we are presented to Him, we will be holy. Which means that we will be set apart for God, that we will be separated from sin, and God will see us as holy as His Son, How is that possible? It is only possible because on the cross, Christ took our sin. But when you believed, guess what you received? God gave you the righteousness of His Son. In other words, He paid the debt of your sin. And then He filled your bank account with eternal benefits of salvation. And one of those is, He has clothed you in righteousness. And so on that day, he will present us holy before him in his sight. And the holiness on that day in which we will stand will be the holiness of Christ's perfect obedience and sinless life accredited to us. Wow. But it doesn't stop there. We will be blameless, which means that we will have no stain of evil. No stain of evil. Because the last time I checked and I looked in the mirror on any given day, I'm still fighting sin. Don't know about you. I'm still joining Paul saying, oh, wretched man that I am. But yet on the day that he presents us, God will see no stain of sin. No stain, no blemish. We will be like Christ. Perfectly like Christ in our character before him. Blameless, why? Because of the fact that he has made us righteous in him. So no stain of evil. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But what did he do? He washed it. White as snow. But look at the third thing. We will be above reproach. What? That means to be free from accusation. Now, again, in our sanctification, we want to live in such a way that no one can bring a charge against us. But this is talking about our relationship with God. And on the day that we are presented, we will be free from accusation. No one will be able to bring any charge that will stick against us. Not even the devil himself. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. So this is a glimpse to the future. He has reconciled us through his blood, through his body, of flesh by his death, 
in order to one day present his people holy, with no stain, and free from all accusation. So, now God will see us on that day in that manner. So here's the truth applied. The truth is this. God calls sinners to be reconciled through Christ's atoning work alone. So if we want to be standing perfect in his sight on that day in heaven, we must cling to Christ and him alone. We must have a relationship with God through Jesus. And then we will be ready to appear before him. That's the implication of the text. In order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. And that's the last thing that I wanted to point out here is that it says before him. Notice again, we were alienated, but now we will appear before. And what happened in between is what Christ has done to make it possible. But that leads us to a third observation, the outcome of reconciliation. The outcome. Now, it's interesting because this is one continuous sentence in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we have seen our need for reconciliation. We were separated from God. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. And then we see the means of reconciliation. Something changed. And that is when we were converted and we were brought to Christ and we put our faith in him. God has reconciled us through Jesus to himself. And now here's the outcome of reconciliation. And there are three things that you'll see here. One, we persevere in the faith. So it's not just that we just sit around and we say, okay, well now I know that I'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. But no, what he says, if you continue in the faith. And that word if is conditional. Now I think if you weigh that in light of everything else in Scripture, what Paul does with these if clause, the if clause, is he uses it as a means to motivate believers to continue in their faith. To continue believing. It's kind of like a parent who explains, at least it feels this way, like a parent who explains some major gift to a child and then says, if you clean your room, if you get your chores done. And you kind of say, well, wait a minute, there's a condition applied here. But no, no, no. The condition is simply this. Once you believe, you must continue to believe. And as you continue to believe, your faith will then end in sight when you're in his presence forever. The condition is not adding works to our salvation. Paul is showing us that those who believe must continue in the faith. And what you'll learn ultimately is all those who truly believe will continue in the faith. Nevertheless, Paul encourages them, right now, what do I need to be doing? Continuing to believe. Stable and steadfast. Remain tethered to the gospel. We must continue believing, continue clinging to the gospel, and continue in faith. Meaning this, by faith, I continue to look to Christ for righteousness. You, you follow that? I continue to look to Jesus. I just didn't, I just, that didn't just happen the day I was saved. Today, we are continuing to look to Christ for righteousness. And then as this week goes by, I'll be tempted to look to myself. No, i got to keep looking to Christ. By faith, I need to keep looking to Him. I need to continue to apprehend from Christ that I am right with God. Not my works, not my efforts. I must continue to look to Him in faith. And that's what Paul means when he says, we persevere in the faith. And the promise of Jesus is all those who are truly His will persevere all the way to the end. That's why the hymn says we persevere through many dangers, toils, and snares. That I have already come. Persevere doesn't mean that we are just triumphantly running through life. Persevere also means sometimes we're just barely holding on. Is that used this morning? I mean, there are days I feel like I'm just ready to march right towards the gates of hell like 
Aragorn in Lord of the Rings and the Black Gate. Sorry, I had to say that. But then there are other days that I feel like I'm just barely holding on. But you know what I'm barely holding on to? The gospel. The gospel. And all of us can testify to that. By God's grace, you have continued to believe. And then there have been a few that we thought they believed and then they're gone. Well, they probably never believed then. Because the testimony of church history and the testimony of every believer and the testimony of all your lives is is that even when you're barely holding on, you are still clinging to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And sometimes it's a struggle. Listen, I'm a realist. We just keep going. We keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's like running a, sometimes the Christian life is like a mini marathon. Believe it or not, I ran a mini marathon some years back. I know, shocking, isn't it? And you know, of course you prepare for it, but you start out feeling great. But the longer you go, and the closer you get to the finish, I mean, you feel like, I mean, you almost feel, feel, you're almost like you don't even feel your body anymore. And you're trudging and you're, you're lunging forward. Sometimes that's what the Christian life is like. But we keep believing and we continue in the faith because we are gospel people, a gospel church with a gospel faith. That's what Paul says here. Second thing is, is we are preserved in the hope of the gospel. Yes, we persevere, but we are preserved in the hope of the gospel. Look what he says. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says we cannot shift from the hope of the gospel. It's the only steady ground, the only true foundation. And in the end, if you've been a Christian long enough, what else are you going to turn to? Where else are you going to go? Are you going to give up on the gospel and earn your own way? In times of trouble and difficulty and sorrow and suffering, and we wonder, God, why? What else can we turn to? Our only hope is Christ. And that's what Paul says here. Twas his grace, he didn't say this, but that's why the hymn says, Twas his grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So Paul says we are preserved. He says not shifting from The hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And that's why, thirdly, we must proclaim the gospel. We preach the gospel of reconciliation. Paul concludes the entire section with a statement about the gospel that they have heard. This message of reconciliation is what has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And here we extend the call to sinners that they can lay down their arms and surrender because a way has been provided to be received by God and have a place at his table. And so in light of that, we don't only proclaim that message, we live that message being reconciled to one another. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Just like that opening illustration, sitting down with kids and having them reconcile to one another, we take the gospel to sinners and we tell them how they and God can be reconciled together and that they can have a vibrant, loving, and Enduring, persevering, persevering, preserving relationship with the living God of the universe if they simply repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the truth applied. Continue in the faith and the hope of the gospel. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep looking to Christ. What has been the outcome of your salvation? How has these things unfolded in your life? So as we come to the end of this text, what a transformation, right? He's reconciled us. Our need, our condition before salvation was in, we were in desperate need, and then we were transformed. 
And then Christ reconciled us the means. And now the outcome. Here we are persevering week in and week out, day in and day out in our faith. Through all the trials, all the difficulties, all the things we experience, we are continuing in the faith. So it is really a transformation. And we have to ask, how on earth did we end up here in a relationship with God? It reminds me of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. I don't know if you know this, but to it, they, on January 1st, 250 years ago, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. A testimony to his own conversion. His life before salvation. I, I mean, you read, if you read his actual journals, it's just amazing the life that he lived. Even though he grew up with the truth until he's about seven, he plunged into a life of rebellion against God. Immoral, blasphemous, managed a slave warehouse in West Africa, became a captain of a slave ship, and then God saved him, changed his life, reconciled him to himself. And on his tombstone, here's what it says. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. May that be written on our tombstones. He has reconciled us. If you're a Christian today, you've been reconciled to God. It was your greatest need. Christ was the means. And at the outcome of it is that you continue to believe and rest in the hope of the gospel. And today, if you're not saved, be reconciled to God today. Not tomorrow. Today. Believe today. Run to Christ today. And you will be saved. And he will receive you. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. Let us bow our heads. And as we do, our response this morning as believers will be to observe the Lord's Supper. And so to prepare for that, let us bow our heads and pray and thank God. And for those of you who maybe need to respond to this and you have questions about this, I'll be available after the service, after communion, and would be happy to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads now. To praise you that through Christ shed blood on the cross we are reconciled to God. We thank you that in Christ we have gone from slaves to sons. From enemies to friends. Separation to fellowship. With you. You have taken our sin and placed it on Christ. And taken his righteousness and imputed it to us. Because of Jesus we stand holy. Without a stain of sin. And free of all condemnation. Your wrath has been satisfied. And your mercy has been set upon us. We who are unworthy and undeserving. You have made. Not only your friends. But your family. So Holy Spirit may we be reminded of this great gift of reconciliation. As we together as your people partake in communion. May all of it honor you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, author of our salvation. And may it give comfort and consolation to us. And may you draw the one who is outside of Christ into a relationship with you. In his name, amen. As we come to the table this morning, we remember the gospel that we have preached. What you have experienced today is the preaching of the word, and now you have the showing of the word, display of the gospel. And so to remind us of what the Lord's Supper is, we're going to also use for Lord's Supper the New City Catechism. And so on the screen you'll see a question that says, what is the Lord's Supper? In response, let's say this together. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ for the church.
he commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, reconciliation. It's also a means by which we feed and nourish our souls. Together, it looks to the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. Second question, does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? Together, no, Christ died once for all. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal celebrating Christ's atoning work. It is also a means of strengthening our faith as we look to him in a foretaste of the future feast. But those who take part with unrepentant hearts eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so at this time, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we must be reminded that it is for believers who place their faith and hope in Christ his death and resurrection. So if you're a believer this morning, you've been scripturally baptized, you're a member in good standing with this church or another gospel-centered church, I joyfully invite you to partake of the bread and cup. But if you're not yet a believer, refrain from partaking until you come to faith in Christ. And again, maybe you'd like to speak about a relationship with God. I'd be happy to speak to you as we as you leave today. Parents, even as we go back to the message, use this is an opportunity for your children if they have not yet made a profession of faith and followed Christ withhold them from participating and then in your home remind them of their need for a savior, the sin that separates the hostility of their own minds toward God the evil deeds that flow from our hearts that have fallen and point them to Christ so that they will too one day believe and then be brought into the fellowship of the church I encourage all who are believers to examine, let's all examine our hearts that we may partake in a worthy manner. Let us not only rejoice over the reconciliation we have with God, but let us be reconciled with one another. Let us repent of those things that would separate us. Let us ask God to forgive us of those attitudes in our heart that would, that would hurt and harm our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So to prepare now, I'm going to ask Chad to come and begin leading us as we prepare to take. Heather, 